0: Hello and welcome to Register, the podcast about architecture and landscape from the Kingston School of Art in London. My name is Andrew Clancy. In this episode, I am joined by Cat Rossi, a design historian based here in the Kingston School of Art. I first became aware of Cat's work um, uh, actually shortly after accepting the offer to take up work here as the Professor of Architecture when I was speaking with Tom Emerson. And he recalled a lecture Kat had given his students in the ETH, which he cited as one of the best lectures he'd ever seen, into the design culture around Milan and post-war utopian movements within Italian architecture. And so it's been a delight in getting to know Kat's work as part of my time here. And this uh, interview follows up a wonderful lecture she gave us into her research into Uh, the Italian radicals and the manifestation of their thinking in a series of clubs and nightclubs and then the broader culture of nightclub architecture that sprang from that. In this interview we range widely as we always do from uh, the chronology of Kat's own career and developing research interests to the specifics of a major exhibition she's co-curating in the Vitra Design Museum which is going to open on the 17th of March. This exhibition, which is entitled Night Fever, Designing Club Culture from 1960 until today, is the first exhibition to give a comprehensive overview of the design history of the nightclub, examining its cultural context. And this, for us in architecture, is an incredibly um, inspirational uh, way of grounding some of the ideas of these architects, such as those from Grupa 9999 and Superstudio and others, when they actually were attempting to put their ideas, both political and architectural, into a tangible form in these experimental spaces that they were making in the mid-20th century. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, Kat, I don't need to welcome you to the Kingston School of Art because you're already part of this world. So, but thank you for making the time for this conversation and for the beautiful talk you gave a couple of weeks ago.
1: My pleasure. Thank you very much for the invitation.
0: I mean... The lecture was fascinating. We might get back to that later because it's kind of your current concerns and your current research. But just as a kind of introduction, I was interested in, so you're a design historian and, you know, a very eminent one. But I'm interested in the journey by which you arrived there. I mean, how how did you come to finding the space you currently occupy?
1: Well, there's different lengths of story I could (laughs) tell about.
0: As early as we can do it, maybe.
1: Okay. well, um, in essence, I'm a failed designer, think that's one way I like to think about it um, which is to say that I studied design as part of my undergraduate degree but realized through that process that I much more enjoyed and was better at talking about design than I was actually studying it Um, and I found out about this little discipline called design history that I'd never really heard of before um, but to me seemed to to do what I wanted to do, which was to, um, to engage with the culture of design past, but also increasingly as what's happened through my teaching and research, is to use that past to also engage with what's going on in design today. Yeah. So I did a master's in design history at the University of Brighton, and I did my PhD in history of design at the Royal College of Art and v Museum, I have a kind of shared um, department um, that focuses on that.
0: So, what was that like? Was that you using the archives of the V&A, or how was that?
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, it's that relationship is something that exists outside of me and, and predates um, me. They have a very um, kind of world-renowned MA program in the history of design. The interesting idea around it is that you get the benefits of being in the art school, so at, at the RCA and all the the individuals and practices that go on there, but also you get the connoisseurship. And the objects, to boil down what the v consists of um, as well. So you might have um, supervisors in both camps, for example. Um, and it was a really f- fascinating place. I mean, a, um, a real privilege to be able to study there, actually, and to make the most of, um, of the kind of expertise amongst the different curators there, for example. And to be amongst these objects that I was talking about in my mm. research.
0: No, it's really interesting because a lot of people who are in the space of say architectural historians or theoreticians or design historians such as yourself who are incredibly valuable to our disciplines and and maybe I should explain a bit more what I I mean by that. In architecture there are a lot of say academic traditions which are injurious to practice which are uh, removed from practice and actually um, skeptical based on a non-generous attitude to it and then people like you are actually very rare and very valued in architecture because you're ultimately about the enabling of a culture, which is, of course, it's a very clear sighted looking, but it's a looking based on enabling. And so what I wanted to say was that thing where I was a failed designer, it's also something that um, another eminent historian in architecture said as part of this, interest, this, this series, <laughs> he said, I wasn't, I was a failed architect. But is that true? Is it not just about finding the part of the field by which your abilities are most fertilely placed or something? You know what I mean? I'm just saying this to the students listening to this and the people listening to that. It's not about failure, is it? Or it's about finding a place?
1: (laughs) That's a very nice way of putting it. I mean, and you're right. I think now teaching um, at Kingston School of Art, I've been here about five years. Um, I'm really keen to help our studio-based students that I teach as are, as are the tutors in the studios, understand the multiple possibilities in terms of careers about what it means to study design and architecture. And a very valid outcome is to um, get into the worlds of curating, writing, researching. Um, and there's a particular type of expertise or types of expertise and skill sets that having studied design. You know, engaging it with your hands really brings to your understanding. Mm. It's a it's a particular way also of approaching the histories. I think you need both. Like I'm not a deep theorist or even a, a kind of deep serious historian in in some ways. And I think, you know, that you require that kind of um, approach as well. But what I would say, what one of the key things that having studied design practice has given me. Um, and I wanted to be a furniture designer, that was my plan, but, um, was that it gave me some understanding of the making of objects. Yeah. And so you could look at certain um, pieces of furniture and talk about the techniques that were involved and even the level of skill, time, effort involved in, in making that. So when it when I then went on to write about Italian furniture in particular, I had some sense of that what it means for that piece to exist in the design processes and making processes involved it also means that I'm aware of my limitations when I don't know the material that I'm talking about whether it's glass or ceramics or you know whatever else
0: no but that's really interesting because in those conversation the agency of those materials plus the cultural context where they are situated is the story in a way and Oftentimes, the agency is the materials itself. Well, in architectural culture, sometimes that gets set aside in, mm. in the addressing of more abstract or, say, purely political or purely economic or purely societal agendas. And, of course, I value that also. But what I find very engaging about the thread that you have pulled on, in a way, is that it allows you to open up both sides of that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think agency is – that's something, actually, that's really important to me in my research – Um, giving agency to voices, things, stories that haven't really been recognised. So much of my research until now, and including now, has been about the history of post-war Italian design and architecture. Um, That's partly because part of my degree was in Italy, and I have Italian heritage and can't seem to escape (laughs) either of those. Um, But one of the particularities of Italian design history um, and architecture history is that it's seemingly so well known. Yeah. You know, the kind of post-Second World War years from the 1940s to 1980s are one of these golden periods that, that, that you kind of get in um, in our fields where certain protagonists get upheld, certain stories get told. But what I was always interested in, and I'm interested in, is that it's always the same stories that get told mm. and stories that promote a kind of hagiographic approach. So my first piece of research, which was from my MA, which I then published, was looking at the role of women designers um, in post-war Italy. There were more than we knew about, but they they also had to find ways of working um, in that male dominated environment. And then with my PhD, which looked at the role of craft in Italian design, which again is something you sort of think that's so obvious. But apart from quite a stereotypical narrative of made in Italy, actually to think about the agency of craft practitioners, of materials, of this weighty tradition that Italy's architects, whether they're Gioponti or Ettore Sotsas, were thinking about were having to think about all this time um, is something that's key to me. And the same idea of the importance of agency also goes into my interest in nightclub mm. research because the one of the interests I have in them is how nightclubs can be special kinds of spaces that can give platforms for expression to people to identities to disciplines even that might not have those vehicles outside so
0: before we return to that I'm really intrigued by this idea of craft but before we return to that I just wanted to go back to this work throwing a light on you know forgotten figures in the culture that we're talking about and we're talking about I suppose the, the middle, centered around Milan this really fecund period of incredibly sophisticated work in Italy at this time, and so you mentioned you were you found these amazing women designers. Can we have some names that maybe people who are listening could Google and look at their work?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what, one of the things I would I would preface talking about some women before that is that I'm not interested in creating a bigger canon. Yeah. So I, I don't really want to kind of say these are there are more important people that we should be adding to this list. Uh, methodologically, I'm interested in sort of also dismantling some of the ideas that histories are written around the best, whatever that might constitute. But there are certainly female practitioners who deserve more attention, um, and they would include people like Guy Arlenti. Um, And everybody who I would mention, they're all architects. Yeah. Um, And this is one of the reasons why perhaps we like talking to each other, (laughs) is that all... um, all designers or rather there were no designers in post-war Italy they were all architects who included design as part of their education and their professional practice Um, there was no discrete design education until uh, I think really the 1970s Mm. Um, and even today there's a very close if problematic relationship between design and architecture in Italy um, so yeah, these these are all architects, so they would include people like Gaia Olenti, who designed furniture, but also um, the interior of the um, Musée d'Orsay in Paris, for example. Mm. People like Anna Castelli Ferrieri, who was um, who was kind of part of the company of Cartel, so all these wonderful brightly coloured plastics that we surround ourselves with. Um, people like Chini Boeri, who was the mother of Stefano Boeri, so, mm-hmm. you know, leading architect and former Domus editor today. Um, who designed some fantastic domestic architecture, and she talked about how, and many of these women that I spoke to talked about the constraints that were placed on their opportunities in terms of practice. Mm. So actually, they couldn't practice architecture, but design was the the thing they could get into.
0: And, it, and and this is this is born out of curiosity, born out of my ignorance, really. Then, is say somebody like Bobardi who obviously had associations with Damas, I think, and, mm, mm-hmm. and then found her place in Brazil, right? Was she part of these conversations or was that a different time or was
1: that... Well, gender wasn't really a conversation. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, that, that's well, we my kind of answer to that. Um, there was an organisation set up for um, women architects and engineers, but the the women that the kind of four or five that gained some prominence weren't really part of those organisations. I see. And certainly people like Gaia Olenti or Chini Bueri, they wouldn't have called themselves feminists. Yeah. Partly because they were fighting a different kind of politics, um, but also it, it wouldn't have been wise to mark yourself out in that kind of way. They might have acted in ways that we would call feminist now, um, but gender might have happened to them, but I it, see. it wasn't something that they were, apart from Anne Cassidy Ferriere, actually, who got a bit more involved in um, these things, but that was one of the most interesting findings. I came with these assumptions um, that they would be feminists because they were, you know, they were working in 68 and all these kind of times when, in general, these, these politicised movements, but also the women's movement was gaining traction in Italy. Um, it met quite a violent resistance. Um, But it turns out that actually being a feminist doesn't help you become a successful designer.
0: I like this thing about not wanting to add to the canon because the canon, it's an interesting problem. right? We understand why it exists and its values and its problems. I mean, I remember, and again, it's it's a minor thing, but I do remember when I lived in Paris coming across Charlotte Perriand for the first time, someone that I hadn't known anything about as a student, and actually seeing in her chaise long that she'd made in Japan out of bamboo, Mm. a far more beautiful and engageable version of this Corbusier thing that she'd worked on in Paris. And it's it's actually in those conversations you're seeing other ways of thinking, which actually open up more nuanced conversations, I think. Be be they male or female, actually, because there are occasionally forgotten male figures, sure, too. Mm. Um, And I see that as an incredible it's a incredibly valuable task that we keep finding these people anew because they change the color of the conversation of what happened these singular pieces like the corb chaise long don't happen in some abstract context as a conversation with others and they are equally valuable parts of that making process right
1: yeah very much so yeah that's a fantastic object the um, bamboo chaise lounge i mean i think mm. it's um to pick up on your phrase it's that idea of history as being always about continuing, changing conversations, in a sense. And this is why I'm not a kind of expert historian, but recognising that the histories that we tell and we're interested in is kind of contingent on the now, which is not to make it reactionary. But I mean, it's not, I don't have a solution to this, like how you write histories without kind of privileging those who you do write about. Well, I have some sense of that. Um, But I do think it's something that's really interesting because whether it's you're writing about women designers or, for example, in writing about craft, you know, you can include a lot more objects um, suddenly if you open your lens up to craft and craft doesn't really have the kind of history books in the same way that design and architecture history does. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, there's opportunities to do very sort of simple craft histories that celebrate certain objects. But it strikes me that the more interesting thing is to do something else, to talk about how you might want to write about history in general.
0: But that's interesting. So now you've brought us back to craft, but again, and, and so again, um, and you've picked two people that I'm very fond of their work. When you mentioned it, you mentioned Ponty and Satsas, right? So uh, Ponty, I can see this conversation with craft, particularly in the timber work and the chairs and all of that. And I'm intrigued that Satsas would have had an interest. So can you speak more about that?
1: Yeah, very much so. I mean, Sotsas worked with, um, in terms of design, every medium from, well, plastic laminates yeah. to marble, to glass, to ceramics. Um And to, I guess, pick out a couple of episodes in that that were formative for him. I'm, I'm hesitating because I could talk a long time about well, this. Well, we could do it as an overview. Yeah, but he... um So um, his interest in ceramics, for example, um, which he started making ceramics in the 50s, but it was really in the 60s that he got more into it. And that's partly from two key journeys that he made. One um, was to India in uh, 62, 63. Um, And he he travelled around Nepal and and he would go on to travel around Bhutan and and Thailand. And then uh, he got very ill from that experience, um, had nephritis, which is a kidney infection. And um, he went to California for his recovery, paid for by Olivetti. And those two um, cultures had a kind of, and the combination of those two cultures had a huge um, impact on him. Mm. One was the kind of spiritualism that you know, almost, it sounds quite cliched, but the kind of spiritualism that going East offered. And at the time he was, he was starting to struggle against the materialism of um, and consumerism of, of kind of post-war Italian and, and elsewhere culture and then secondly was going to the kind of beat culture of California so he hang out with people like Allen Ginsberg for example and through that process he started making or rather having made ceramics um, vessels so speaking to some of the archetypal forms that he was encountering say in India that he would he would use that as a vehicle to communicate or to suggest new kinds of objects that mm. we could have different kinds of relationships with. So he wasn't necessarily interested in craft. He wasn't a patron of the crafts or of Italy's patrimony in the same way that Ponty was. But he recognised craft as a, as a medium for expression. The other example I, I would give is that he was, a bit of, he was rebellious in mm. all sorts of ways. Um, all sorts of ways, um, and so his work for Memphis is super interesting in yeah. that sense. I mean, if you if you take a craft lens to Memphis, then the kind of key thing to realise is that the first collection was entirely handmade. They were all one offs. Wow. Okay. Um, you know, even the plastic laminate was bespoke, and the designers could kind of throw on bits of patterns like in the machines. So these were manually made objects made in. Brianza, the kind of heartlands um, north of Milan of Italy's furniture industry. But then for, for the collections that, that kind of came in the two or three years later, he continued a dialogue with craft. So there was a notable, um, some examples of glassware that he designed in, it was either 85 or 86, that were made on Murano, you know, still a kind of then a centre of um, Italy's craft tradition. But he he wrote quite openly about how he wanted to break out, um, or break its craft people out of this kind of fetish of skill, and this aestheticized fetish of skill that defined their what they made. So you know, your status came on how flamboyant your mm. your kind of piece of glassware was. So he did something that he knew was really naughty, which is that he he asked the craft practitioners. To not hot join together two pieces of glass, which is one where you show your skill, but rather to glue them together and the the design, you could visibly see the glue, which is a really transgressive thing to do. Mm. It was quite controversial, but the thing I find interesting about that is that there were craft practitioners who agreed to that. So it's not like the designer comes in and modernizes these kind of backward traditions. It's that you also get these craft practitioners who want to be part of that dialogue.
0: This idea of transgression or people who push back against orthodoxies in the places where we are, is that sort of how we have this at the same time um, as we have these great traditions such as Ponti and all of this? That the avant-garde paper-based, or so I would have only known them by, paper-based Italian architects emerged from, so super studio, people like this, is that the conversation? They were pushing back against this orthodoxy of continuity and craft and of everything being designed.
1: Yeah, I mean, they, the radicals, you know, they, they didn't come together and say, we're going to be the radicals. Right? Yeah. They were a kind of fairly disparate um, set of architects, which through the process of history making, we kind of liked to group <laughs> together. And I'm part of that. What did connect groups like Superstudio, Akkuzum Satchati, Group of 9999 and others was a rebellion against the status quo and and in particular the uh, modernism which they saw as being a sort of dead end in terms of the kind of spaces and places it was making and the the needs that it was sating or not um, and the kind of worlds it was creating but also against the superficiality and consumerism of design so that you just get these kind of products that we don't need, that aren't kind of functioning, um, you know, that don't, aren't dealing with kind of real-world issues. Mm. And they were coming, at least with a rhetoric, of a kind of left-wing Marxist or Marxian kind of approach. Some mm. are more political than others, some weren't really political, but political with a small p, let's say.
0: And what's amazing about the, the kind of work you've done in that area is, I mean, I would have known them through their imagery, which was mm. this incredibly these incredibly powerfully self-contained universes almost. Even if you don't see the series, one image carries the world in a way. And this mm-hmm. incredible polemicist making of a position, well, ambiguous, but also potentially explicit in an image. But then you opened up this whole world where you found things that they'd actually, people in this movement, are backward-looking eyes we call the movement, made. Mm, yeah. How did you find those things and what are they? And can you tell some of the stories around them?
1: Yeah, of course. So yeah, my understanding of the radicals had been that they, um, and this is still the case, that they were testing not only the or challenging not only what architecture and design should be working towards, but also how it worked and how it communicated and what media it worked with. So they refused to design buildings, this was the position, um, and instead... They focused on the media of very communication based media like image making collages making films performances installations exhibitions all activities that we would recognize today as being part of a kind of architecture and design practice but then unusual at the time and that yeah that was my kind of understanding they did make prototypes of um, of furniture and products that were intended largely for exhibition and certainly intended for provocation. Yeah. Um, I guess that the first sense that that narrative was complicated, actually, was by looking at what happened to some of those prototypes. So both Archezoom and Superstudio, in particular, designed these kitsch products, kitsch furnishings, and Sotsas as well, to a degree. Mm. Um, But certainly with Archezoom and Superstudio, that you weren't meant to like they're meant to be kind of rebellious products that really challenged the tenets of good taste that was underpinning italian design yeah so yeah the sense that there was something more complicated about rad- the radicals came with looking at these objects that they were making so there's a safari sofa um, by Archizum that's covered in leopard print is um is a kind of in the shape of like a, a flower like really you know unattractive kind of disgusting but intentionally but then it gets picked up mm. by Poltronova, gets put into production, and you know, young, savvy people purchase it because of its kind of rebellious status, right? It's kind of provocative piece of furnishing. It talks about your own capital that you can kind of unread that piece of furniture. I mean we're getting this is what uh, late sixties, early seventies, so kind of the irony that would define postmodernism <laughs> as being a stance that you would take as a consumer. Um, so I was interested in how these these objects that were meant to be outside of the kind of commodity or marketplace became desirable commodities, um, something I'd still like to look into more. So already the rhetoric is kind of not quite what we would think and what I was sort of discussing it would be. But what really struck me was finding out about this one place called Space Electronic. And I was writing um, a book chapter about the... Uh, interest in nature and the pastoral in radical design and I came across this image of this nightclub called Space Electronic designed by Gruppo 9999 in Florence in 1969 and the image was of um, a vegetable garden that being planted inside the nightclub uh, in these kind of refrigerator containers it was a tiny image in um, Branzi's Andrea Branzi's The Hothouse book and I, I mean, I was kind of really bemused and confused by what this image was about. Um, it turns out it was a kind of prototype or um, an installation they developed in dialogue with some drawings they'd done for the New Domestic Landscape exhibition at MoMA in New York in 1972. And their idea was about connecting technology and nature, and therefore we'd have these environments that you would have both in. And it was just a really that was you know one paragraph in a book chapter. Thought that was interesting. Mm. And then came the opportunity to co-edit a book um, with Alex Coles for Sternberg Press that was called the Italian avant-garde 1968 to 1976. We were interested in bringing together different unknown, unusual stories about um, Italy's radicals. And I reached out to Carlo Caldini who was a member of Grupo 9999. um, And he kind of took up the suggestion of writing about this place, Space Electronic, and he wrote a fantastic kind of um, article about it with some really fascinating images. And I thought, oh, that, that was that. <laughs> that was kind of interesting. And then on, when we published the book, I had the chance to meet him in London at the ICA in 2013. And this really stands out in my memory that we were sitting having coffee and he told me that, and he was in his 70s by that point, he told me that not only was the club still going, however many years later, but also that he was still running it. And um, he still owned it, still ran it, and was still there pretty much every evening. Which was just mind-blowing. You know, the idea that any club or any kind of, you know, such an experimental space is still going Mm. was intriguing. But also the the idea that the radicals who were associated with not designing any physical places had designed this this place where you could not only see the kind of... um, the kind of architecture that they were talking about, but also you could be in it and you could experience potentially this kind of, you know, these utopian imaginings. It was built in a disused um, engine repair shop in Florence. So it was kind of underground space. And it was one of a number of spaces that opened up in, in the city following a huge flood the year before. So you would um, go down into this, um, this on, through a ramp into this kind of empty basement space and then he would come up into this big black block black box container, which is the space above. And there was furnishings, very simple furnishings, that were, as you say, ready made, so washing machine drums, like salvage washing machine drums, and also these refrigerator casings that they would use for kind of structural elements. But to describe it physically, it doesn't really do justice to what it mm. was, um, because Space Electronic was a space that really only became alive through the use of lighting and sound technology. At the time that included um, overhead projectors, um, slide carousels, film projections, and also television screens. So they had they were one of the first clubs, if not the first club, to have CCTV cameras inside the club that would um, communicate what was going on in the different spaces of the nightclub. Now, in order to understand why they might do that. Um, you have to go back to a, a, a journey that um, Caldini and one of the other members of the um, of the collective, Fabrizio Fiumi, had done the year before, or so before, when they'd gone to the States on um, a travel grant to look at architecture out there. And they'd visited venues, including the Fillmore in San Francisco, where another member of the group was temporarily based, but also significantly Electric Circus in New York, which, funnily enough, Paul Rudolph had had suggested that they go and visit. Hmm. It's one of these strange things, all these characters that come into the story. Um, And Electric Circus um, was a space that similarly was a kind of uh, an empty container that used projections all over the space in quite disorientating ways, as, as you already mentioned, to really transform the architecture, but to transform also the experience of being in that space. Its precedent was in um, a night called the Exploding Plastic Inevitable, which was um, a performance orchestrated by Andy Warhol, where you'd have Velvet Underground and I think the Grateful Dead on stage. Um, And there would be projections all over the walls, but also onto the band. And so you'd have these multiple kind of sound sound effects of the music and other sounds, but also multiple imagery being projected onto the audience and onto the um, and onto the band as well. Mm. So it was really using this new media in really interesting ways. And that attracted um, theorists like Marshall McLuhan, who wrote about um, the EPI in um, The Medium is the Message, as being the potential, transformative potential, of this new media technology. So Caldini um, and uh, and kind of Grupo 999, they'd visited these spaces. They were really interested in McLuhan. And so they wanted to create this similar environment that used technology to transform space, but also had this utopian potential of connecting people, you know, the kind of global village that he was talking about. So it was interesting for how it dealt with architecture, but also for what happened inside. I mean, the the nightclub as a space was very new, a new kind of space. Mm. It wasn't codified, it wasn't commercialised in terms of what should happen in it. So they had everything from recorded music, but also live music, bands from Italy and Britain, in particular, they had um, poetry readings. They had theatre performances by Living Theatre, who were um, still an American experimental um, kind of theatre group who performed right on the dance floor. They also hosted. Um, they had a, an occasion where they had an architecture school on the dance floor as a way of you know the alterity of this kind of space for trying out things that you wouldn't be able to do at architecture school. Uh, and they also had a, um, a two day festival which involved Super Studio, um, but also um, Street Farmer, the kind of British collective, and other European avant garde collectives, where they kind of put on a, a, a festival of radical architecture for two days. And that's where the vegetable garden came into it.
0: As we move from, say, buildings, clubs, our venues, which had an architectural form or hierarchy, you know, a stage, a proscenium, potentially a dance floor, that sort of thing, to these kind of dematerialized spaces, which, as you say, it's a black box until people start turning things on. Mm. Something we're very familiar with now, almost to the point of it's only possible for a particular range of activities now. The, the nightclub is quite a diminished field. Whereas they were also seeing it as this kind of, so this multiply, pro, multiply programmable space with a wide range of diverse ways of using it really. It's a kind of a free space of some sort. Really. Yeah, very yeah. much so. Yeah. It's really interesting because part of that was they had this huge fabric, was it a
1: parachute? Yeah, so one of the um, inspirations that they took from Electric Circus was that in Electric Circus there was this sort of tensile structure that was stretched across the walls and ceilings and that's what they would project onto. So even the images weren't clear in terms of, you know, once you get it onto kind of curved fabric as opposed to flat wall. And then in Space Electronic there was a huge parachute that was suspended um, from the ceiling um, that was similarly used to project on. um, But also I think in used to kind of disrupt the idea of how you constitute architectural space.
0: One of our previous speakers was Beata Holmerbach, and she is professor in AHO, and she was there as a student also, was taught by Sverre Fein. You know, he's a great Norwegian architect, and he, you know, he's very famous for the buildings that he made in, say, Venice, the Nordic Pavilion and other Mm. structures, which are... Uh, very tectonically driven very immersive spaces actually but with clear links to kind of architectural typologies and formal um, histories but she found a pavilion that he proposed in the 70s i think for a fair which was a huge inflatable volume Mm -hmm. the models he made were used uh, he used kind of inflated condoms basically but he was it was a huge membrane that you could walk into uh, inflated by air And it would, it was supposed to be a meditation on the environment and on the conditions of the world. And so it would breathe, the air would exhale and Hmm. inhale, so it would deform itself as that happened. And then the entire perimeter of it, which you never saw, was these overlapping slide projectors and video projectors of the oil production industries and all of this sort of stuff, making this unreadable collage on the diaphragm. And I don't know if there's any link, but it's just such a similar kind of spatial thing. And when Beata talked about it, she actually then made, built it for uh, uh, the architecture museum there. And I found it incredible that an architect like Fane would have been making something so radical. Now, he was a radical in the form that architecture was, you know, he was doing venture stuff, but the inflatable or the fabric and multimedia as an architectural form, they're not themes that we examine a lot, really, no. are they? Or um, these things like temporary pavilions and things like that that last for a brief period of time, we don't look at them, perhaps, in the way that you are. Like, I think you're opening up a kind of much bigger field of endeavour to do with seriously addressing these kinds of things.
1: I mean, yeah, there's a strong connection between those uh, expos and those kinds of or biennales or these temporary Opportunities for architecture that open up experimentation, which then it does continue. It does have a legacy that isn't necessarily recognised. I mean, when you're talking about that fascinating sounding Pavilion, my mind goes straight back to Corbusier, 1957, yes, of you know, Phillips Pavilion. So in terms yeah. of using media in different ways, and at Osaka in the 1970 uh, Expo, there was similarly, and Pavilion. I haven't. We really had a chance to look into a pavilion that was. Um, it was by EAT, E-A-T, yeah. um, which was similarly about a kind of multimedia environments. Um, and then at Montreal in 67, so a few years earlier, there were similarly, you know, these kind of experiments in temporary architecture. But one of the architects that we talked to for the current exhibition that I've been working on, Night Fever, um, Francois Daligris, he talked about how that actually spurred than experiments in the city itself, like in these, maybe not permanent, but, you know, more enduring than the kind of weeks or months of, um, of of an expo. Mm. So that there are those connections, which is, you know, one reason to look at them, in a sense, to think about the legacies of these spaces for play and then how they feed into architecture more generally.
0: No, it's, it's fascinating. It's really interesting. And uh, what are you up to now with all of this? You're
1: Well, <laughs> <laughs> as we speak, it is um, one month before... The current exhibition that I've been working on opens and this is an exhibition called Night Fever Designing Club Culture 1962 today and it's opening at Vitra Design Museum on in Valheim Rhine on the 16th of March and this is the first large scale exhibition to look at the relationship between design and club culture from the 1960s to today on an international scale. Mm. It's quite some endeavour yeah
0: <laughs> just that isn't
1: it <laughs> yeah um so i mean behind it is um obviously feature they, they proposed the exhibition which design museum and the lead curator is Jochen eisenbrand who's the chief curator um, at the museum and we're also working with nina um seralus who's um, a design historian very interesting design historian based um for this project at adam design museum in brussels which um, is the next venue for the exhibition. So Feature always do touring exhibitions and that's um, where the exhibition will go at the end of the year. So we have a large catalogue that we've put together, about 400 page catalogue with new research um, into the multiple relationships between design and club culture. And by design, we're covering everything from architecture to interior design, to furniture and products, to fashion, graphics, Film, uh, also these more one of the interesting areas that we're looking into, and a real challenge for us curatorially is to think about the design of atmosphere and of effect in um, in nightclub culture.
0: I'm very familiar with festivals and you know music events like this, but I don't go to nightclubs anymore. I haven't really. <laughs>
1: That's okay. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> so what do we miss again? I mean, is there spe- spatial invention happening in those spaces? that we're unaware of and should be more aware of.
1: I mean, to talk about the past first, there is a history of nightclub architecture and design that is completely absent in essence, or it's in bits and pieces. So this is my interest in the overlooked kind of coming in here. Um, And yet there have been... You know, some incredible architects involved in designing spaces. So Arata Isozaki designed Palladium Interior in New York. Mm. Joseph Rickbert designed Whips Nightclub Interior in Leicester Square in 1963. Mm. Um, I could go on. Um, and there's incredible spaces that get that have been designed. What was Rickworth's <laughs> um, club like? So it only lasted a year or so before it was redesigned. I mean, the shortness of clubs is... One of its defining features and challenges as a researcher, but the WHIPS was um, a tiny nightclub um, on the first floor, I think, above the what is the Prince Charles Theatre Cinema in Leicester Square, and it was a tiny space, and it had um, artificial grey fur on all of the walls, and the furniture was mostly black with some other kind of brass, yeah, kind of brass fittings. Um, some kind of modernist um, furniture and then a piranha fish tank in the corner. (laughs) I mean, it's really, uh, he talked, um, Joseph Rickworth talked about it in a recent, one of the last issues of AA Files actually um, Mm. about this experience. And it's not, you know, it's not probably something that he's known for, but lots of architects, you know, this is maybe their first commission, for Mm. example, um, or their first chance at yeah, to, to build something, actually. So well, it's
0: interesting. I mean, it's not quite a club, but it it was a nocturnal activity, a brief endeavour. The Cinerolium, I suppose, by mm. Assemble is, mm-hmm. is, is part of that tradition, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and actually we're, we're featuring... Um, so Assemble have designed a structure for the Horst Music Festival, which is in Belgium, last year and we're featuring that um in the final room which looks at kind of the rise of festivals for example Mm. but yeah certainly the the design of these spaces that are highly dependent on experience affect on drama and performance Mm. um there's a bigger there's another kind of research project um i think around that as well
0: and so this exhibition, then, you're, you're working with people to design it and kind of put it together?
1: Uh... Yeah, there's, I mean, there's an amazing team at Vitra, and really, you know, they're, they're, they're the ones who are kind of really driving all this forward. We're very lucky in terms of the designers that we're working with. So the exhibition design is by Konstantin Gürtsevich, the German industrial designer. And the, uh, the catalogue and the graphics are by um, a British graphic designer called Daniel Street. I mean, there's a real challenge of how you create and curate an exhibition about nightclubs
0: yes I can imagine
1: because let alone I mean the material in in many ways is sparse because people were having too much fun to um, yeah. you know kind of archive their objects or their interiors or well, the interiors you know such an ephemeral history you know clubs change. Um, owners change decor quite quickly they shut down, they get burnt down they have all these kind of histories that go with them Um, and it's hard to trace who owned what, when and all of that kind of thing so getting the material is is one thing Um, and it's not really in collections, in museum collections although we do have, um, we've got objects from the V&A for example, more in terms of fashion and graphics but then it's also the question of what you do with that material and what kind of stories you want to tell because one thing that we were very clear on was that we didn't want a kind of white walled, it's not a white cube with things on plinth kind of exhibition. Partly that's, that isn't what you would do to that material, but it just deadens it completely. This is, you know, all of the material that we're talking about raises questions actually about how you curate design more generally, which is that the material in itself is important, but it's what it does and what it did that mm-hmm. is also key and one of the objects that are the types of objects that that really um raised that as a question for me was thinking about um like lighting for example um or speakers
0: mm-hmm.
1: and if you look at you know a piece of lighting technology uh, whether it's a projector or whatever it is these are often black box devices that deserve some attention for the kind of you know the the technical sophistication of them that goes into them as objects but that says nothing about their function and that's true even if you compare them to a chair like if you see a chair on a plinth you can kind of get a sense of what it does mm-hmm. it'd be better if you could sit on it but you know at least you can look at it and it's recognizable but if you put a switched off kind of piece of lighting on 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 a plinth or in a vitrine you get no sense of what it does something that i read that really helped me think about that was um Simon Reynolds' book on rave culture, Energy Flash. And he talks about what he calls the effective charge of rave culture, and that it's how it makes you feel, how it makes you experience, that's the key thing to understand. And so the challenge is thinking about the effective charge of the objects that we're talking about, of the interiors that we're talking about. This is something that's within the limited reach of what you can kind of address in an exhibition, and certainly the first time that you think about it. But we've done things like what well, we've incorporated elements of kind of ex- um, nightclub architecture, for example, in this space. So they aren't really white-walled rooms necessarily, but also we've commissioned a light and sound installation that's been designed by um, Konstantin Grcic. Um, in collaboration with Matthias Singer, who is a German lighting designer who creates lighting ins- installations for a number of Munich-based nightclubs, for example, as some attempt to at least talk about how do you, yeah, how do you curate um, an exhibition on this subject.
0: It's interesting as well because one imagines that the opening night of this exhibition, you could, normally at openings one avoids them because you can't really see the work, right? Everybody's just getting a bit sluzzled and <laughs> yeah. pretending to be polite. Whereas at this, theoretically, that's its best form, right? When it's rammed and everybody's had a bit to drink. Am I? That's very true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that
1: is very true. Yes, and, and um, we've got you know a great DJ lined up and all of that for the opening, um, but I think it's it's also a question of, you know, the curators and I would talk quite clearly at the beginning that we're not a nightclub. Yeah, it's not a nightclub. It's a museum that's doing an exhibition about a nightclub. And that's, you know, A, it would be a terrible nightclub. <laughs> but also that's not what our role is to do, is to tell some of the many, many stories that there are about, night, um, about the history of nightclubs. But also in the, in the absence of at least a kind of coherent or gathered history around this, because obviously other people have been doing research into nightclubs and, d- and design, I'm not the first one to do so, is that we can be a platform for future research. Yeah. You know, for all the stories that people would want to tell about clubs.
0: Yeah. It's a a fascinating area. I mean, it's a funny one where um, I was having a conversation. This is purely specious, really. But we were having a conversation with a friend a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about the current problem of industrial chic, or whatever you want to call this issue that we have. And he had a very interesting suggestion. He was saying that in the same way that the found spaces of artists and others in New York produced the loft culture for, Mm -hmm. as as an architectural language for high-end luxury, which is a kind of paradox, that the found club spaces of post-Wall Berlin produced a situation where suddenly these found spaces were club spaces, became restaurant spaces and places for the consumption of things which was bottom-up. But now we go to Costa and they have a wallpaper of brick to make it look like their niche in the high tech airport hmm. is a found space, which is something, of course, their entire interior designers doing completely unthinkingly. But I did find it a very interesting balloon he threw into the air because I was sort of like, yeah, there's something, you know, the way banks use plywood now, not um yeah. To not veneered inlay and brass. Mm-hmm. Somehow the materials of industrial production and actually of austerity, in a way, mm. have become the languages of high end luxury, which is a curious time in architectural yeah. culture. Certainly, interiors architectural. culture Yeah, no, point. you're right. Um, that's just I just floated out there. I don't know if it has any link at all.
1: Well, I mean, apart from yes, <laughs> a very good insight, and also you know, kind of disgusting in a way to see highly commercial spaces. But isn't that
0: some of the stories that you're tracing, is that, you know, um, this space in Florence is now, it's still going, but mm. it's a Euro pop club now. The radical furniture from people like Sotsas mm. becomes commodified and mass-produced. And in some senses, the radical always seeks to get ahead of itself and the forces of capital continually turn it into the thing that it seeks to not be.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is one of the reasons, in a way, you could say that, that one of the reasons why the radicals imploded and they guess, always do inevitably yeah. yeah and that that um that question of longevity and legacy is actually one of the things that first drew me to space electronic um so i the first um exhibition that I did about it an installation really which was for the 2014 Venice Architecture Biennale, which was um, for the Monditalia section that had about 40 installations that looked at architecture stories that said something about Italy, in essence. And so I chose to, to curate an installation about Space Electronic. It was called Space Electronic then and now. And the thing I, one of the things I was interested in was that architecturally it's still the same. Yeah. It's still a black box container, you still enter it in the same way. And it still has an emphasis on technology but the technology has changed, obviously, and it's still run by the same people. But nothing that happens inside is the same. So it's that question of sort of, well, how long can, you know, like how long can an avant-garde last? Yeah. In a sense, well, that's a big question around it. But also I wonder about the fact that it continues to exist and it isn't so well known, and maybe even that Grupo 9999 until recently weren't so well known is it because it was built so you are let you know the potential of the super studio imagery is so wonderful kind of you know evocative so powerful but you never have to test them against that idea but if you actually build a physical space where you say you're going to do all these things then suddenly you're faced with the concrete capitalist um, kind of reality Oh no
0: absolutely I mean you can see what Archie Graham did to the culture of architectural education in this country uh, both expanding and in some senses shutting down things through the power of their imagery precisely mm. because they refused to get caught in the things that they actually were prepared to make. And I think that, that's, the, that's the interesting... That's the interesting tension that we're talking about.
1: So what would have happened if Archogram had won the 1970 Monte Carlo Casino com- competition? Yeah I think it which would have included been, a nightclub?
0: I think it would have been a really good thing yeah and I think that there would be less uh, people in schools of architecture persuading um, architecture students not to design architecture. Uh, I think that, that, that the realization of things like that those mm. key moments. Are kind of vital to kind of earth the power of the discourse and I don't mean that to diminish it it's to say that the tension between what is desired and what is made and the potentials of that is the conversation that seems to we're continually navigating that, mm. that line and in certain places of course the Orthodoxy is too close to the artifact and in other places it's far too far away Um, you know, to the point of disabling people. You know, I say this as somebody where we open the conversation with you talking about wanting to be a designer. There's a lot of people who want to be architects and designers. And in some places, they're given a conversation which is an enabling one, which opens up these worlds. And in other places, it's disabling Mm. through through over-adherence to either of those polarities. Maybe I'm wrong.
1: No, but... Well, no, but I think what you're making me think is that the history of nightclub architecture... Is about spaces that were both desired and made. Yes, yes. These are, some of these are mad spaces. I mean, even if you think about the hacienda, which was Ben Kelly's only his second built work. Yeah. Um, this kind of temple of postmodern design, um, which wouldn't have been built for so many reasons, let alone budget, and it was contingent on a factory records label that you know kind of opened up. You know, said he could do what he liked, for example. But that's somebody, you know, very young, out of, you know, out of art school, in the early days of their practice, being said, being told, well, you can realise your desires. Or places like Area Nightclub, um, which was in New York, opened in 1983, and it changed its interior every six weeks. Now, it could only manage to do that for a few years, yeah. because that's maybe what happens when you have the energy and the kind of temporality or the time scale that you put into, into projects that are about desiring. As opposed to them projects that are about kind of existing, yeah. Which isn't to say you shouldn't build those. I mean, that's that's the important thing. No, that's the
0: thing. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's 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 one values all of these things, and um, it's it's the kind of the the ability to get up and to do the thing, mm. which which will never be fully what is desired, but that tension is necessary, and I think.
1: Yeah, and I think actually the history of. Um, nightclub architecture and design is, is actually a lot about agency and yeah. about doing it yourself Yeah. and about people just making spaces because they, they feel the need to create their own environments or to create their own kind of outlets, you know, for escape and hedonism and experimentation, which is why... So you're asking me about um, what's going on in nightclub culture today. Yeah. Um, so in the last... Um, kind of decade or so, half of all nightclubs in the UK have closed. Um, A third of those, a third of nightclubs in London have closed. Um, Similarly, a third in the Netherlands have closed. And and there's, you know, lots of different reasons for that. You can kind of easily, maybe too easily, cite gentrification as being a kind of prime cause. But also it's about changing social behaviours. It's about social media, kind of eviscerating the idea of the separate space that a nightclub provides. Um, but even in that story of closures, there's still this persistent need to keep going out at night and keep making spaces. So, in the last few years in London alone, we've seen spaces like Printworks opening, um, the Bussy Building um, in um, in Peckham, um, Corsica Studio, which has been going for a long time in Le- um, in uh, Elephant and Castle, and these are spaces that people are making and we need to have cities where you can make spaces like that. And that's the, that's the thing that worries me about nightclubs closing is not so much the historic places are closing because nightclub culture is about, you know, setting the needs of what young people need now. But it's more that if the, if, and our argument is that clubs has provided these kind of almost heterotopian spaces sometimes for experimentation and to be who you want to be, then what happens when we don't have those spaces?
0: Yeah. And is that is that's interesting because it seems to be so widespread because the I I always thought the issue in London was to do with its current capitalist fervor but is that not the case then is that is is it happening in cities that have less speculative bubbles as here
1: That's a good question and one good because I I wouldn't have a definitive answer to I Sure mean, yeah it certainly happens in London a lot but then we've got a lot more nightclubs to close <laughs> in <a> sense <laughs> Um, It's also to do with um, budget cuts, so budget cuts to policing and local councils, which have seen um, clubs, what happens both inside and outside the nightclub, as being um, antisocial, like being built as antisocial spaces. No, it's funny.
0: So you're seeing the uh, the collapse of the the social state in so many ways is producing, these things are becoming... Problematized when they weren't problems before, and now they have to become things which are objected to and and removed.
1: And champion now. I mean, that's the you know in terms of um, we now have um, in London we have the nighttime czar, um, Amy Lamay, who's about promoting nighttime industries um, and things like the night tube are meant to be kind of supporting and promoting what is in essence is described as the nighttime economy because there's meant to be a kind of economic benefits to to all of this as well it's
0: fascinating and i look forward to seeing the exhibition is there any chance that it would move or be reassembled somewhere else
1: yes well um hopefully it will come to the uk in a couple of years time um it yeah it will it will travel to different venues around the world and yeah fingers crossed it comes here
0: so thanks so much for your time we always wrap these interviews up with one question which is just if you had a piece of advice to a student embarking to study well it could be design history or it could be mm-hmm. design or architecture. But a, a student embarking on a course in our fields, what mm-hmm. would it be?
1: Well, to make the most of every opportunity, I think, to make the most of your the environment that you're studying in, not just about the courses that you go along to, but all the amazing people around you. And that sense of freedom and possibility, hold on to that.
0: That's a great, note to end on. thank you very much, Kat Rossi. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Register and thanks again to Cat for her time and her insights. Um, Before signing off, there's a couple of small or major pieces of news, I suppose. Uh, Two of our external examiners are involved in the forthcoming Venice Biennale in a major way um, and we'd like to just congratulate them and wish them our best. Uh, The first is Miriam Delaney, who's an external examiner to her undergraduate and who is co-curator of the Irish Pavilion at the Biennale. And the second is Elizabeth Hatz, who is an external examiner to our Masters, and Elizabeth is part of the main exhibition um, curated by Shelley McNamara and Yvonne Farrell of Grafton Architects. Indeed, if you want to hear more from Elizabeth in particular, we do have an interview with her as part of this podcast series. And while you're going back through those archives, I might draw your attention to the interview with Flores Pratz, who are also in that main exhibition. So I'd like to thank you for your time in listening to this. Do remember to subscribe and to leave your comments. Um, We're enjoying uh, seeing this podcast grow and we're enjoying the feedback that we're getting from everybody. Uh, I'd like to thank again uh, Laura Evans, who's my co-producer of this series of lectures and podcasts, and Madoka Ellis for his work on the technical side of things. And I look forward to you joining us in our next episode. Thank you.